Blood and Black Rum Podcast presents Suspiria 2018. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast, which may or may not be rebranding in the near future. I'm Ryan from Colesploitation.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Martin. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. Um, we're it's a nice day in upstate New York. Sure, sure. <laughs> We are back today. Um, our episode's a little late again, and that's because we had to do a film that was two and a half hours long, and so that doesn't always afford us enough time to get it done on a weeknight, so we kind of split it up, and we watch the movie on one night, and then we'll do the podcast on a different night, and that's probably the best way to do it, because otherwise you're looking at like a five-hour affair of well, I mean, watching I did, the film. And I did volunteer. Like, we could all just watch it on our own, but part of the mm. part of the fun stuff. Part of the fun is sitting there, MST3K style, riffing on the film. Those are the outtakes that you don't get to hear. It was probably the better part of the episode. <laughs> it would be the better part, but... Uh, Regardless, no, actually, that's not true because we did a commentary before and that was pretty difficult. <laughs> I was actually talking to um, Jay from uh, the Movie Talk podcast that mm-hmm. we did um, for Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th parts one through, one through three. Yep. I was talking to him. He had uh, tweeted to us and uh, a couple other podcasters about doing commentary. He said he wanted to try to, try to do a commentary and was asking for suggestions on films. And I said, I got to tell you, you got to pick one that like a movie that you know really well or else you'd like recently watched just before you do the commentary because or i would say something you've never seen yeah and then you can just like riff on it and and, in a film that like it allows itself to be riffed on in that matter i think like unless you're very talented even like films that we've seen a million times yeah i think would still be incredibly hard like if we were to do like like you what you want to when we did our hundredth episode not just a review of the thing but a commentary, I still think, you know, that would have been incredibly hard, even though both of us have seen the film a million times. I would like to do more commentaries. The biggest, the issue with doing commentaries is not only actually doing the commentary, syncing it, it up, but also getting the setup done. Because if we're watching the film, we can't, we gotta have headphones in, we gotta, you know, the whole nine yards is, is very difficult to do a commentary without like a studio setting. So, uh, obviously, we don't have a studio setting, so we're not able to do that so far. Um, but uh, yeah, we did talk about that a little bit. I think he's going to do Halloween, which I think is a good choice. If you, you know that one's one that you wa- no, uh, the or Rob original. Zombie or no, the original. Oh. Yeah, that's a good choice though because it's one that you um, you know pretty well. It's pretty easy to uh, riff on that one, I think. So. Um, I would like to do more, as I said, with uh, Blood and Black, or maybe for the 200th episode or something like that. Um, one that maybe we know, like a movie that we know a little bit better than RoboCop, which we had only seen one time previously, and then we tried to do it. The other thing you got to remember is Batman that... Batman v Superman. Yeah, yeah. The other thing you got to remember, too, is that I feel like when we did it, we we felt like we had to fill the time. Like we had, like every, literally every moment had to have been filled with comments uh, and that's not the case, you know, because I've I've uh, listened now to a, a couple of different audio commentaries. Hey, let it breathe, like, like you know. Yeah, let let it breathe a little bit, you know. Let it just, you know, the only comment when it's really something that you can you can riff on or uh, make a note about. Um, the other thing too is uh, I I found very interesting is I started listening to some audio commentaries by his film historians mm-hmm. when they do them on Blu-rays, and uh, when they're doing like a single person is doing the commentary. They have it planned out like pre 
pre-comments and everything like that, they've definitely got like a whole written down list of things that they're going to talk about, which I found very interesting because at that point you're more like doing a scripted reading than you are a commentary. And I thought that was interesting because they really go in depth on that. And that's that I, I imagine that takes a lot of work to really prepare for an audio commentary like that. We're never going to do that. Listen, well, we're never going to reach that. Level but again, of, we're going more. Yeah, we we're going more mystery science. We don't do the his- not 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 James Lipton here. True, in no. The actors. We, we don't we don't do the history part of it. Like I really, I, we're not interested in the context or like this actor was a real NYPD I mean, police officer. I mean, I would be. That's because I'm a history buff. So like that would be. But like, do you want to do the research to do it on a show? We don't even research our episodes, or any of our episodes. We just do it off the cuff. On Batman v Superman? No, I don't want to know, like, well, Ben Affleck on this one day. Exactly, uh, yeah. Wasn't feeling so well because he got water chestnuts in his Thai food and (laughs) went on a Christian Bale-style rant about how the (laughs) poor catering assistant was useless. Yeah. Well, that's why we don't do any of those types of commentaries. But we, I mean, maybe in the in the future we'll do an, a regular audio commentary of you know, riff track style, uh, funny funny lines and stuff. But um, so this episode obviously has been a long time coming. We've talked about it quite a bit. Um, we said that we were going to do it when it first this film first released, and then it never came around to us in theaters, so we could not do it for the, our last Halloween episode. So you know what, we're doing it now. I lucked out. I got a nice ultra high definition uh, copy from one of my friends who got the film for review. So we're doing Suspiria 2018, directed by Luca Guadagnino. And I like saying that name, so I probably will pull it out here. Guadalupe. Guadagnino. Guadagnino. I don't know why, but every time I hear Suspiria, again, I mentioned it when we reviewed it, the original, but I just think of like, because I heard it say at work, uh, you know, I just think of Def Left for Hysteria. But instead, like for the chorus. Oh, you heard hysteria at work. Yeah, but okay, I, I was but thinking I, like I was mentioning no, Suspiria no, at work. No, but I but I know I love I love the song. It's one of my favorite Def Leppard songs. But, but every time I hear the chorus, I just like go Suspiria. Can you get that beat? And they just replace the series Suspiria. I don't mm-hmm. know. Just I find it funny. Yeah. It makes me look like it's like, you know. It's a little internal giggle that little, you get. Little dull drums of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something. No, we're ta- we're doing Suspiria 2018, which I guess you would. I mean, you could. This is another thing that's called a requel. Um, one of those remake wheels. I, I wouldn't call it that. It is. It's a requel. It's. I would say it's because it's not a sequel. It's it is not. not, pre- not it's no. not a prequel. It is not. It's a remake, but it's. I mean, it's not really in the same sense of. It's like almost the exact opposite of. The original Suspiria. So then it's it's do it turning what, it on its head. What would you call that? There's a word for it. No, I'm trying to. Th- I can't remember. Mirror image. Mirrors come into play in this. That's what it is. It's a mirror. It's a mirror of uh, Dario Argento. No, there's Suspiria. like what's the word like for like turning something on its head? I don't know. I know there's a certain f- word in Tetrising it. No, a certain idiom for it, and mm-hmm. I I can't think of it because. I don't getting, know. Getting a hole in the mind is fried, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a if, word I, for it. if I if sh- I if I shout it out during you know you go, yeah, yeah you think about it just but, just say it. Well, no, I'll give I will before we get too thick into the weeds. I'll give the film credit. It takes the original and you know 
nobody wants to really see remakes of a lot of movies. This is kind of a movie that I'd say is probably probably in that category. Oh yeah, for sure. But at least they're not like <clears throat> with Psycho and then the remake <laughs> of Psycho, a sh- like a shot for shot remake, right. and you're like, why why bother? Why, like why some, somebody was like, you know who I want to see in Psycho? Vince Vaughn. I mean, it's different with music. Like cover, like right. when people cover music, like they can do their own take, or they can like play it very similarly. But it's like that's one of my favorite bands, and like they're like they're play, paying homage. It's great. It's not, yeah. you know sounds great. It doesn't work that way with film. At least I don't think so. I I think that in in especially in Suspiria's case, when it was announced that there was going to be a remake, there was a lot of backlash to it because people are very very uh, worshipping of Suspiria as a film. It's not something that people will say like, oh yeah, you know, there was room for uh, them t- to improve on it. Like, there will be people who are like, nope, the, uh, the original Suspiria is perfect. No no reason to ever go into that. Which, Which I, I do not agree with. And, and you I don't agree no, with. No, I, I wouldn't get you know, that. I Again, w- as I said in the original, it's not like it's the fucking godfather no. for God's sake. I mean, sake. I would agree. I, I I don't think Suspiria is perfect in any sense. It does become a little bit tedious throughout in its you know middle portion, um, and the plot itself doesn't really have a whole lot going on with it. Um, and it's it's very underwhelming in how it's portrayed. If you take away the visuals of the original, yeah. Do you think people would be lauding it as this, like, landmark film? I definitely don't. I mean, I think the visuals are a huge impact on why people think that Suspiria is one of those great horror films. Um, just not something, you know, it, it doesn't have much of the staying power as some of the other better films that have, like, a, a better plot going on with them. It's the visual effects that have really com- compelled this to, to the top of the horror pile. And, I mean, I agree. I think it looks really great, and that's part of the reason why I love the film as well. Um, but I think if you go back and listen to our original Suspiria episode, um, we both bring up those topics of, like, it's not a perfect film. Um, it certainly is, like, very lacking in, in exploring and fleshing out its uh, its plot. So. And I know, too, you've always described it to me as, like, a dream. And I've heard mm. other people, like, say, oh, it's like a dream world. But the movie never really gives you the sense, like, outside of, like, the color palette and the the way the film is shot, like, that it's dreamlike. I mean, the surrealism of it, I think... It's is surreal, it, but yeah. it's not like, oh, it's, dream, it's dream-like. Like, like you're watching like a, like a David Lynch film where everything, mm. like, oh, just kind of is like very dream-like. The biggest really dream out. sequence that I would say that that's, would, would um, kind of show that is the example of uh, when she's walking through and she just... Uh, one of the characters finds herself in a room full of barbed wire. I mean, that's like sort of the surrealism of like, why the fuck do they, are they keeping an entire room full of barbed wire? No, you're just, right. No, you're right. But again, does that it's surreal? But is it? Yeah. It's not. There's yeah. not a dreamlike quality. To it. The only dreamlike quality too. It's like, oh my god! All of a sudden, I'm in barbed wire. Why the fuck am I in barbed wire? You know? Yeah. Well, one thing that's kind of interesting about Suspiria 2018 is that Luca Guadagnino does take some of those ideas of uh, these weird surrealistic moments and he and he includes them in this film but they're very different from what uh, Argento included in his movies and you do see some of the um the plot scenarios make their way into the 2018 film as well they may be couched and very hidden in the entirety in what I might call mess of 2018's very um intricate storytelling which is a complete opposite to argento's version 
but the the beats are here. So the the same beats of Argento's classic does find their way into this Suspiria remake or requel or whatever you want to call it. Although like it's it's well hidden within Guadagnino's own vision of Suspiria. And I have heard before we get into the actual details of this film as well. I've heard a lot of people say that they're they were kind of feeling like Guadagnino had his own storyline written and then decided that he was going to turn it into a Suspiria film. And I think that does in some ways make sense because a lot of the ideas between what Guadagnino brings to Suspiria and what was originally intended in Argento's works, they're kind of mashed together. And at two and a half hours long, this film goes into lots of different directions. Um, it does uh, sometimes feel like this was two different intended movies and they kind of mashed them together and they're like, okay, yeah. I mean, it sort of works. The, the, some of the parts are, are there. I would see it more as... I, I, I would disagree with that. I don't think it's really as much two different movies. I would see it's more... You take that five minutes of exposition you get at the end of the original Suspiria about like, oh, it's mothers and witches and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he actually is like, let's flesh this out and make this an actual concept and idea. Yeah, and I and would that's, say that's... And, and, that, and that's what it you know comes across. like so it, And it's a mixture of the visual and actual narrative, whereas Argento in all his films is only concerned with the visual aspect. But I would say that, too, like they do bring that in, and that would be part of the Suspiria part of Suspiria, the remake. But there's also that whole German... Jewish Holocaust historical aspect to it that feels like it may be somewhat removed from the rest of Suspiria. And I think that, I think that criticism is valid that they're saying, you know, this feels sort of like a mashup of two different ideas that maybe don't, they don't mesh as well as they possibly could. And perhaps that's also on us as a audience to maybe not recognize what Guadagnino was going for as his overall theme and arc of the film but at the same time it doesn't matter right exactly it doesn't matter there may you know that's what your audience is getting from it so there's there's a um push and pull between audience and author and i don't know that suspiria was able to bridge that gap well i i think one of the and going a little off topic i think one of the funniest and kind of coolest things when you kind of like take looks at stuff like not just film but like literature and whatnot is like Artist intention and then the audience interpretation. Mm -hmm. And it gets really funny when audience interprets something one way and then the you know the artist is like, no, I meant it like this. And it's like, well, you, you didn't, you know. And especially when you have a vast majority saying like, no, I think it's this. And the artist's like, no, I had, that wasn't my intention at all. It's supposed to be like this. It's like, well, you, maybe you should have done a better job, you know. Yeah, there, there definitely is an issue with how your audience perceives what you've written and what you intended. If it did, if the audience is not perceiving what you intended, then somewhere along the lines, you lost the audience. And maybe that was your thought process when going into it. That's, and that's what you intended to write, but it didn't come out that way. And you know, that's the kind of interesting aspect of being an author and being like having that idea in your head and then also trying to set it to paper or put it on film and figuring out that like, what was in your head 
does not easily translate to a medium that somebody can intercept. It's, you know, it's stuck in your head, but somebody else didn't get it that way. Uh, very interesting. And that it, it kind of shows the philosophical ideas of like, you are yourself and me, your, you, your mm-hmm. own, co- what you yeah. bring for context to the film is not the same as what the author intended. Which is um, why, and which is why I also again I find it funny because I'm I'm a very big proponent of art as soon as it's out there and is being interpreted by the audience. It's it's the public's consumption. Yeah, you know. Yeah. For so sure. when like George Lucas is like, well, I didn't like that. You know that Han shot. I thought that was cold blooded and A New Hope, and so I edited it a fucking thousand times after the fact. And people are like, no, that's stupid and whatnot. And he's like, well, that's mine. I made it. I can do it. It's like, yeah, you can, but uh, you know. It's been out there for 40 years. It's, it's public consumption, you know. Yeah, exactly. People have made it what it is, and that's it. And, you, you know, know, if yeah. no one else is there to, you know, to view and purvey what art you're putting out there, then you have no audience. Therefore, whatever art you create is just your own. Even if it's like this beautiful painting, it's just your own internal feelings that you put in no one's view. Basically, if a tree falls down in the forest and no one's around to, you know, hear it, does you know make it sound? Yeah, I am of the the mind that you know, as an author, once you put it out there, that's it. Like hands off approach to it. You know, whatever happens, happens. Leave it alone. Yeah, and that's it. And you know, you can't go back and like posthumously edit it <clears throat> and say like because if you could, if that was like an uh, accepted thing. Which well, it really is not with even with Star Wars. I mean, it's not really that well not, accepted. It, well, in a lot of things, like, could you imagine now, like Stephen King, like, yeah, I didn't exactly. li- I didn't like that I wrote. You know, it's a bloated, you know, work. I'm going to trim trim it down from a thousand to six. Yeah, you know. exactly. Like you, you that sets a precedent of like epic proportions that anybody could go back and then you can you know fix and edit Fifty Shades of Grey so it's not complete shit in a fan, <laughs> fanfic of Twilight and then you, you know you, where does the line stop there and then everything is in like a perpetual editing stage um, nope once it's published and which done basi- it. Well, I was gonna say, which basically ruined like George Lu- not ruined because he was a fucking billionaire but his career of making films he's always said like I want to make a bunch of films and I just yeah. basically got stuck on re-editing Indiana Jones yeah. and Star Wars just, for the rest of my life. Right, exactly. You can't. You you just can't because again, that's not healthy for the creator either. Like at a certain point, you got to let it go and just be itself and move on to your next project. That's probably why Stephen King pumps out like three, bu- was like pumping out three books a year. Yeah. <laughs> or he holds on to them until they're at a point where he's accepting of them and he's like, okay, well, it is what it is mm-hmm. now, so I'm going to publish it. So, all right. Um, let's. Do we have anything for beer? We talk? did because we had yesterday. Uh, which one are you referring to? What do you want? Well, the main one, not the rand, all the randoms, the one that we went to the the release party for. Oh yeah, we did go to um, Stump City, which is our local um, brewery in the area. It's our only one, but we are getting a second one in our area, and uh, we we attended a uh, release party. Did they even announce that release party? I don't, I didn't see anything. About they did it, the week before, but they didn't post about it. Really, yeah. They didn't really notify many people of it. So they had, but a, it was bumping. Mm, it was. So they had a, uh, a scotch ale that they have newly created. Um, and I, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. It was a, we, it's a, we heavy scotch. Ale. It was, it was pretty heavy. Um, at 7%, it was a, a pretty heavy beer, hefty beer. And um, I thought it was really good. I liked it a lot. I love Scotch ales. Not super carbonated. Um, you know, nicely within that nice frame of. Did have like a fruity aftertaste. Like, well, like maybe like a, a little bit. Yeah. Like a, 
like dark, you know, like dried fruit, which I don't really care like for. Like that as much. raisiny sort of but, ale style. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but that was like just blending in with the alcohol taste, so it was more like. Mm. But I still liked it a lot because I love Scotch ales. I think it's a very underrepresented uh, style of beer, at least in our area. And with the miserable winter we've been having of a snowstorm every other week, um, fit perfectly. Yeah, and you know too. Um, sometimes these beers, the heavier beers, they they can tend to if you don't um, have a, a good flavor profile, just taste like alcohol. And this one did not. Um, it didn't have. Yeah, I mean, it certainly had the alcohol flavor to it. You know, the heaviness of it, but it still had its own over overarching flavor. So uh, I think that's a success. That's a, a Scotch Ale is, a, is admittedly a tougher beer to um, to handle and do well. And that's why a lot of people don't do a scotch ale, um, because there is a fine line. You're not you're, like it's not a stout, it's not a porter. It's you don't a, want to go that route. It's so, not a hoppy. Yeah, exactly. So you have a limited range for a scotch ale. Uh, so a lot of people just don't even attempt it. Heavy, heavy malt and heavy out. You know, yeah. And the it's what you know. It's what called we we heavy. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But really, I like I said, I really do enjoy them and. Yeah, like I said, really good. I'm, I'm sure it's probably not gonna stick around for long because I think it's probably gonna get replaced by whatever stout they make for uh, St. Patrick's Day. But very good, especially, yep. especially because we're going to beer fest soon. And it's gonna be fucking all hail the IPA, you know. That's right. And the fun thing about Stump City is that we can talk about it on the show, and none of you can try it because it's fucking really I'm, local. So it's one of those beers that is like. Only we can actually get this one, which is not very often that we can do something like that. Unless you, if you're a listener and you're in the Fulton County area of New York. Yeah, you're pretty much out of luck on getting this one. They definitely don't go, I don't even, they don't even go out of like area. They don't have any sort of distribution. No, it's just them in. uh, It's a a fucking shed in the woods. I was going to say, it's them and Roger Cider. Yep. So none of you can actually get this. Sorry, but. We had to talk about it anyway. Anything else that you want to bring up for beer? No, that's all. Like you said, we're heading to Beer Fest. That's not next weekend, right? But the weekend after. Yep. So we are expecting many, many IPAs. Um, not really sure what this year's beer is going to be, but I would assume it's going to be something like a brute IPA. Like a brute. Yep. That seems to be the big thing. That See, I want seriously what, what like pot was people like smoking? Uh, to be like, ah, oh, you know, it would be a great new idea for an IPA if we combined it with a champagne. Actually, you know what I do wish that the hemp IPA makes a return and is the big one. At yeah, but least. I've only ever seen uh, New Belgium do that. Mm. I haven't seen. I know there are a couple. Not that we can get, you know, down mm, the line, but yeah. um, I know a few people make them, but the Hemperer is the big one. That's it. Because well, New Belgium has the benefit of being a national brewer. And and the new <laughs> the New Belgium Hemperer is really good. I would like to see more people try to try to do that style. Mm. Um, it's a unique style. Um, well, maybe when pot becomes legal and, you know... Well, at that point, you'll have literally pot-infused beer, because that is a thing. It's just not a thing where we are, because it's not legal. Which I, I did find funny that they were, I don't know if you saw the poll on Facebook, like, do you think marijuana should be legal? And 
You had like the Sheriff's Association of New York being like, no, we don't think so. Makes them a lot of money. That's why. I know, but it's <laughs> it's, it's like, it's coming. Don't worry. It's, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's happening. It's, yeah. I know. It's coming. Don't, don't fuck. Because it's like it's like the same thing with like gay marriage, and you had that one old man still like sitting on a rock. Like, no, it's yep. wrong. It's like it's coming. Yep. Don't <laughs> if you don't like it, just sit at home and bitch about it. It's co- it's I co- for one will welcome the dankness, <laughs> especially in my as ear. long as it's gonna be bringing tax revenue to the stock. So I fuck it. I don't yeah, care. Absolutely. And for those of you listening in New York State, we don't have propositions to vote on. So. Nope. It's not like uh, we can't just any, throw it. Yeah. Can't throw any just old silly idea on the no, ballot. I mean, we don't. We don't have that sort of thing here. So. Uh. All right. Let's get into Suspiria because I do have uh, some things to say about it. First, after I got done watching it, I was more just in a state of you know WTF. But um, more and more as I thought about it, definitely got uh, got got some ideas on what to discuss. So, we uh, probably should just start right at the beginning with the plot here, because the plot actually becomes, instead of Argento's, where the plot's sort of secondary to everything else, the plot of Guadagnino's film is, like, the entirety of it. Integral. Exactly. And at two and a half hours, and it was, at one time, a three-hour cut that they they cut out a half an hour of, um, there's a lot of plot going on in this film. And even at two and a half hours... It may still be a little bit too truncated for the the plot that it does have because there's so much to kind of fill into that time frame. Um, one thing I should note is that this film is very talky. Um, it does have a like a lot of just building moments. Uh, so going into it, just don't expect like wham bam like getting right into uh, every action sequence or there's going to be tons of like horror related moments or suspense. There definitely is. But it's interspersed and very much mixed in with a lot of elements of just like talking or very slow burn. Yeah, it's very very. Which I think is a a benefit to this film. The fact that it's it, it does a lot and, itself, really. and adds to you know. I would say this is more you know like like thriller, like psychological thriller, even though it does have horror aspects because mm-hmm. it's a very slow, tense build. Focused on the plot and the actual character, you know, backgrounds and and it's um, methodical too. Yes. it's it's and 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 when I say interspersed, I literally mean that. Like it's very much like Guadagnino was thinking, like, okay, we're gonna hit him here and here and here, and that's what you know. That's the mm-hmm. whole that how it works throughout the whole film. It's just like when you think it's getting a little bit too slow, then it'll hit you with something, um, and then you know it'll go back into the moments where it's kind of go at ebbs and flows basically um but the plot itself takes place in 1977 um same as the original same yep same as the original um there's a at that time it's in germany obviously same as the original there there's a german ballet school um, this time instead of being in some town like just random town outside of berlin it's actually in berlin it's yep and and i think that that is an important aspect to the film itself it needs to be set within a location because this was a, a the contextual element of being in Berlin and being near a lot of different historical elements uh, is important. So you you have um, the history element to this film being the RAF um, uh, RAF uh, 
Terrorists. terrorists and um, people being held hostage in a um, German prison. Uh, so throughout the whole film, as our characters are within the dance, uh, the ballet school, um, you have the uh, elements creeping in from the historical a- aspect of this film about you know how divided Germany is at this time. Which at the time, uh, which as watching this, I'm, as Ryan can attest. I'm a history buff. I enjoy history. This is even stuff that I don't even really have a great knowledge. This is like world history, uh, German history for the most part. Well, it, it's it's more because it's more like in a time gap period that's like unless you're kind of really like looking for it, you know, you're not. Right. Especially from like our generation of like growing up, like when we were in high I mean, I studied more than just in high school, but like uh, when you're studying like U.S. history in high school, mm. we're like done by 19, like you just get have enough time and someone who knows the curriculum of like you know teaching in high U.S. like history in high school, it's like you got enough time to like just get to like the Vietnam War. You might get to talk a little bit about Nixon, the salt, and the, but you don't get like you know it's not like we ever covered like Watergate, and so like now like talking about global, like I already remember in global, like it's not like anything like we got into the too thick into the weeds of like again like sixties is like. Cut off. And, and I think too, this this is a particularly American gap. Um, if you were probably more UK, German, Italian, this might be more of a, a world history or a history that you would know more local history than what it is for us. Um, because but, because for us, that last month is just cr- cramming and reviewing. Like, all right, you got your test coming up, you yeah. know. But yeah, I would I would say like I don't know that much about this period in time for Germany. You know, like for me, it's I'm not I'm, like I said, I'm not gonna lie. It's just like outside of like after like you know the Marshall Plan to like the Berlin Wall falling, which this like whole part of like the them inter sprinkling in like this these moments and stuff really remind me of Atomic Blonde because it's like mm-hmm. it was in the same in your face like two like Atomic Blonde was like two days before the wall falls in Berlin, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and then you you do get that throughout, like radio recordings, TV shows, which and because I'm not well, again, not well versed in this specific historical point in West German, East German history. What's the time frame of this film? I know it's 1977, but is it days, weeks? Mm. Is it a couple of months? Seems like it's probably weeks to like a month. Maybe. But at the same time, it feels like by the end of the film, our main character, our protagonist, Susie's been at the academy for four days. Right. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It seems like again, there's that like little dreamness to it that it's you don't really know what time has passed, and there's the only thing that you really get is the, those snippets, those those recordings from the outside world of what's happening outside of the institute where. Uh, you may you you get an inkling of how much is happening outside, but you don't really know exactly what time has passed. But the whole the the whole historical context is really important because Suspiria works on historical context. Um, it is not only just about this one period in German history in 1977 with RAF, um, but it's also about the global guilt that's felt in in Germany after the World War II and the Nazis. Um, and, and looking back at that and, you know, there's a, a character, Yosef, who is played by, um, Tilda Swinton, Tilda Swinton, even though she goes by Lutz in this one, um, 
and, and they kind of hid her identity for that, but... Which is uh, dumb, I mean... Well, I think I understand, and we'll touch on that in a little bit, why they hid that identity, but... Um, there's but it's not his, well hidden. <laughs> yeah. His, his whole storyline does factor in with the whole feelings of guilt, living through World War II, seeing the, the impact of Nazism on Germany, and then li- basically living through it, being the one to survive, whereas his wife does not. Uh, that becomes a huge part of an, an integral part of the story that doesn't maybe seem super necessary while the film is progressing. And I think that it's an interesting choice from Guadagnino to bring that back around in the epilogue of the film, which by the way, we didn't mention the film is set up like either a ballet or an opera or a play where it's set into acts and you have six acts in an epilogue. Um, so in the epilogue, they bring this back around to Yosef, but within the context of the film, Susie Banyan, who would be the protagonist of the original Suspiria, is the protagonist of this film as well, that we're sort of like following. Um, although Guadagnino does not keep it within one protagonist, he's often switching back and forth. Uh, you have Mia Goth's character, who is sort of a stand-in for us as an audience member who really doesn't know what the hell is happening. And it's kind of um, plays the part of Susie's friend in the original Suspiria who mm-hmm. figures out the what's happening in, in the, uh, the school. Um, and then you have Yosef and you have Susie Banyan. And then you, you do also follow Madame Blanc a little bit as well. So there's a lot of different characters that are c- coming and going throughout this film that sort of make an impact on what the, the sh- this is uh, all progressing towards. But I think as an audience member, you don't really know exactly where this is progressing to. Mm-hmm. I think that's like one of the things that makes Suspiria interesting, even at a long, slow burn at two and a half hours, is that as an audience member, you're sort of like, but what is this getting to? It, it's And it's also, in a sense, you could... Plot-wise, you could kind of say, as you were saying, like we were like, oh, it's a remake sequel. I don't think it's a, like a sequel, but in a sense, you can if you if you were to go off the idea that it's dreamlike, you kind of could say it's a sequel because it could be like a lucid dream that goes back and starts over. Because mm-hmm. where the original Suspiria is all focused on the visuals and the production and the soundtrack and the story is very bare bones, and you basically get hit with the plot of Suspiria in a five-minute exposition at the end. Here, it's right off the bat. Yeah. We have somebody who's, you know, talking to Yo- Patricia, who's talking to Yosef about how she has voices in her head, and she thinks there's witches, and she names the three mothers, Mother Suspiriorum, and you know, all of them. All that shit that's in the original film that makes it like, ooh, it's about witches, that was just tacked on at the end to like, so like, at the end of the film, people were like, the fuck's that about? It's like, oh, we have this guy here to be like, well, yeah, the, to explain well, yeah. that's she's Mother Marcos, and she's supposed to be the inhabitant of Mother Suspiriorium, who's this like legendary god witch, and but she also has two other sisters, you know, that uh, maybe down the line, uh, if I fucking feel like it, <laughs> I'll make a film about it. Here, right off the bat, like you know, they introduce all of that backstory. Yeah, so it's like. Without, yeah, with, it, it's like without a shadow of a doubt, kids. You're uh, unless it's like Ghostbusters the remake. That we got, you know, we got sequels in line. Yeah, and the other, I mean, the other thing too is that Suspiria keeps its witches hidden for like the entirety of the film. 
and here they don't they don't really say what she's. I mean, yeah, they, they do sometimes, but the thing is, I was, I'm not an Italian film expert by any means, as I said a thousand times in this podcast. I've seen enough Italian films now, uh, now though, to know that they bandy that word about in films like it's like you know just like. For like, you know, like, oh, she's a witch, witch mm-hmm. you know, witch, witch, and like, there can be like, no witchcraft involved, but they like to say the word witch. Yeah. I know? mean, here, there's no question. I mean, because yeah. we do get some of the point of views of the witches. We see that there, there's some get internal to see the strife. Whole, get to see the whole coven. Yeah. There's internal strife. There's Madame Blanc, Madame Marcos. None of them really know who is the Mother Superiorum. No, like, that's the question. Who is Mother Superiorum? Like, no one knows it. And so the whole internal strife of the coven is like, who's going to lead us? And so you, there's no question at this point throughout the film. I think it's even it even happens like ten minutes in where you already meet like the coven. You see their meetings, you see their telepathy, and you, there's no question that there's witches at this school. There's a lot of exposition involved in like, yeah. you know, of these seeing uh, Tilda Swinton's Madame Blanc talking to the, the other, you know teachers at this school that are part of the coven about mm. like you know yeah what they're trying to do like it's not this like vague idea it's no we need a strong pure body so uh mother marcos who has been yet again voted as head of this coven to have a body to transplant herself into so she can be you know, youthful and yeah, you because know. she's otherwise fading into out Wh- of existence. Yeah, Wh- witchy stuff. You know, like, you know <laughs> yeah. All all that was missing was they. they I mean, it's ex- it's basically stated because uh, as we see uh, Susie throughout the film that she's in this one, they give her the extra layer of her being Amish mm-hmm. part to her character, so she is uh, virginal. But it, it's like you know, they don't they don't downright say like we need a pure virgin body. You know, right, right. Transfer the soul. You know, but it's it's heavily there and implied. One of the interesting ideas about this film is that, and and this is important to know, a lot of people, most people don't consider Suspiria a giallo. It's, it's really not a giallo. It doesn't really follow the format of a giallo. It's more of what, a supernatural thriller. What do you mean? Someone dies because of a razor blade. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the yeah. number number one staple of a giallo. Someone gets to throat slit by an old-fashioned razor blade. You gotta have the black gloves, though. Yeah, and, and black gloves. Yeah. Um, but most people don't consider Suspiria and I, myself included, a giallo. But in this film, it does adhere more towards giallo style and, and even more so creamy rules where there is a um, there is a mystery in, in, at hand, but the mystery is not who is doing the murdering or who is killing people in this school. The mystery is who the fuck is Mother Suspiriorum? No one knows. Who's going to lead this coven? Which, by the way, what the fuck does that mean? What? Mother Suspiriorum. Mother of size. I, yeah, I know that. The film explains that. <laughs> Why? Why does there need to be a mother? Of size. Is just I mean, a ra- it, random I just, thing uh, that Dar- I'm just Dario like all, all I could Actually, think... Actually, Daria Nicolodi, but... All I can think of is just like, when, you know, everyone's gone through it, unless yeah. you've didn't grow up with um, your mother around but like when you do something stupid and you can just see them shaking their head sighing yeah. like Ugh. that's that's yeah that's is, where it came from so is that what that's supposed to be like, <laughs> I have no like idea. mother superior arms looking on this coven like you dumb honestly bitch. Like, i you know? think there is some more like uh context italian context of like books that argento and i would assume it's pretty much assumed that nicolo daria nicolo wrote suspiria and 
Argento took a lot of the credit for it. Um, so the the scholastic context of the film, I think there must be something more to the the size, the tears, the you know that sort of thing. Um, do I do I know what the size? Legitimately I mean, and, and is? I haven't no. seen Inferno and the other one, so I can't I couldn't tell you. But I mean, just from an outsider who doesn't know as much about Italian culture, I would probably say tears. But maybe that has to refer to like the Virgin Mary. Yeah, it's it's there. There definitely is more context to it that you know came about from studies, but. Um, in but this case, I, the size is the... Yeah, but all I could think of when it's like, oh, she, Mother Suspiria, I'm the mother of size. What is that? Like, so like just the mother's like, oh, you dumb... She, she's constantly just disappointed. Like, just like, you, <laughs> like, yeah, just like, you oh, you dumb bass. Oh. Well, that is kind of the case, right? No, I mean, no, it is, in, but... In this film, Mother No, it Suspiria is, but I, I don't think that's the point, though. But that, no, I, mean, yeah. she, I mean, that's what ends up happening. It is. Like, it's like, more like disappointment, like, <sighs> you guys, but, uh, yeah. I'm gone for a couple hundred years, and look yeah. what you do, yeah, you I know. know. I know. Um, so I guess what we should talk about is, um, like the, the similarities and differences between the original Suspiria and this Suspiria, because there are definitely some similarities and you kind of have to look a little bit deeper to find them. But Luca Guadagnino is using some of the context of the original film. What's that? Yes. Finally came to me as you were talking about that. When I was talking, when we were talking about turning something on his ear. Yeah. This film. As a remake, subverts your expectations. There you go, subversion. That's that's this film. It is. Hey, what did the original film have? Bright Technicolors. Yeah. You know what this film is? Fucking gray, bleak, and, you know, very... Drabness. Yeah. Very drab and muted, which, you know, to be honest, you make sense, because this 1970s, everyone had, like... Pea green and brown couches and shit. Yeah, so let's let's expand on that a little bit more of the drabness because whereas you know you think of Suspiria, the original Suspiria, and you think like really nice bright colors and it's very artistically visually um, astounding. This one is as well because Guadagnino's directal directional abilities are are clearly um, on on a great level because you do get that drabness. the The costume design mm. is beautiful. The settings themselves set around Berlin, the cafes, they're all very nice, well lit, um, where the drabness comes in and probably like in a, it's a Wes Anderson style, like shot, um, depiction and it's, and you get, and you get that from the get go with the, with the opening credits, you know, the credit sequence, uh, Looking like it's like, oh, I'm about to watch like a remake of the Royal Tenenbaums, you know. I, I just, mean, I just expect Alec Baldwin to be like, well, this is this, uh... Honestly, it's all visually appealing in a different way. I still find this very like appealing to look at. No, I, I love it. I, I, I love the fact that they subvert it because if you're trying to be, like, all right, let's try to rematch, you know. Yeah, match like the color, sh- yeah. And no, it's, it's just it's not, it's gonna, not work. gonna work. And so going the total opposite direction, yeah, which makes sense because if you remember the first film and it's fucking Seattle, Nirvana should have been playing in the back because all it does is rain, rain, rain. It's the same thing here. It's just constantly raining. It, that drab palette makes you know fits perfectly with what's going on you know and and uh the the institute does look really nice as well in a different way from argento's uh there's still like the very uh intricate designs and the um symmetry is not a theme though no it's not actually the the difference is that it's not symmetry it's mirrorism and like because we get constant shots of mirror images that are meant to sort of throw you off as a viewer 
watching. You see, they do, they do, but that's like an homage though to the original because the original does have like a lot of those like mirror type shots, kind of going back because again that goes like off of like how the whole one of the whole points of like Suspiria, the original Suspiria as like it from a cinematography point is like symmetry. So like having that mirror image reflecting back. Yeah. So like something like so camera wise and like when you're seeing the shots like in having those mirror images it's paying homage but like I said the it's not like the film like doesn't have like a symmetrical look to it but no. but at the same time it doesn't do like what it does with the color palette it goes to, you know totally subverts the old way. No. This one like I I think that'd be kind of cool if they went more like asymmetrical with their shots like What is like you know like like instead of having like like a shot of like the character talking, and you get to see like the reflection of like the person, you know, like Tilda Swinton or somebody like talking back to them, and like having the focus come in and out. <coughs> if you had like, um, like had probably like more like Dutch angles, like you know, to, sh- well, they- to, to like to sh- like show like how, like because when you have like a Dutch angle, it creates that more like oblong because it's you know shooting well, from down. What I actually like uh, about this Suspiria is that when they do those mirror image shots, they often it's. So you're seeing basically you see the image, then you see the flipped image. It's very it's sometimes it's disconcerting for the viewer because you're, you you're trying to place, you know, okay, something's different about the shot. And they often do that with, you know, showing people talking back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always that um, idea that you're supposed to get the this the same angle when you're shooting over over someone's shoulder. So yeah. if you're shooting over their left shoulder, it should be mimicked when you're shooting over the other person's left shoulder. Oh, you should ask George Lucas about that because the prequels, every prequel conversation is point counterpoint shot of yeah. shoulder over. Shoulder well, over in Suspiria, they don't do that all the time. So there is often that disquieting moment where you're like. This doesn't exactly match up with what I was originally seeing. And I think that's part of it. Part of the mirrors is self-reflection. So because this film is a lot about self-reflection and feelings of guilt and, and things like that that sort of stand out. So there is that reflective aspect of it. Um, but what what ends up happening is that, yes, you're right, it, it does sort of differ from what Argento did. And it, it it's doing it in a way that actually makes sense with the plot. Um, whereas in Argento's world, it wasn't really the plot that made the visuals arresting. It was the visuals that were encouraging the plot. So it's sort of the opposite in this regard, which I, I think makes sense. And you wouldn't want to do the same thing as the original Suspiria. Otherwise, then you really would have people angry with you. Oh, well, yeah. Like, I said, like, like, why, you know, just shoot it in Technicolor, like, like if you're, hey, well, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, like I said, if you're gonna remake it, you have to. Put your own stamp on it. Otherwise, it becomes a total redundancy, and everyone's gonna be, yeah. you know, like I said, it's like it's literally like Psycho, where they're like, "We're gonna remake Psycho." Oh, what are you gonna do? Same thing, same day, shot for shot. Everything's gonna be the same. That's why you know uh, Bates Motel is such a, like a great, refreshing, you know, right? Different take on it. Yeah, completely different take. And for for me, but <laughs> one thing that is sort of similar to the original Suspiria, is that they both do have some soundtracks that don't really (laughs) match the vibe of the film. Um, In this case, Tom York did, Tom York of Radiohead, did the soundtrack for this film. And I do really like what we played at the beginning of this uh, episode, the Volk theme, which is the tinkly piano that's sort of like 
uh, eerie, and that's the one that they do the dance to, the Volk dance. Uh, I like that one quite a bit. It's when Tom York goes into his singing mode. Is Tom York? Yeah, it's, it's Tom York that really does not. I don't think it meshes well with the the sound of the or with the theme of the film. I don't think so either, but I think it's better than Goblin soundtrack. I disagree, but See, I love no, Goblin. No, but here, no. Here's the thing: I'm not talking about quality wise of the sound. Yeah, right. No, you're, you're because because the... I like as I and I pointed this out during the Suspiria film uh, original review. I like Goblin, and I like their soundtrack for Suspiria. It's really good. It doesn't fucking fit at all. It's mm. totally out of Tom York's. It le- it doesn't fit great, but it fits a lot better than Goblin. I just, I mean, for a film that's about like has themes of quiet reflection, having Tom York be like, ah, ah, it's true, nah, it's true. I mean, uh, that fits more with a the theme than like, reflective. oh no, there's this creepy and there's larva and shit falling down and witches and hearing like you know synth rock going on. Yeah, well, I think you know. I agree that in some ways Tom York's does match, and at least his lyrics do match as well. If you listen to the lyrics, they they definitely match with the uh, the thematics do, of the do, film. Do they? Because like I said, everything just sounds like Karma Police to me on here. Well, you got. I mean, if you watch the the film with the subtitles, you can see like what the the actual lyrics are, and I do think that they they fit with what's happening. But I I just maybe maybe it's just me that I don't really love. Like Tom York or Radiohead that much, and so I I think any time where there's an actual singing moment of with Tom York in it, where his with his compositions, uh, especially the concluding scene, the the one in the last act or in Act Six of the uh, you know I don't I don't know if we should talk about it on this in detail or no, if we well, should just like kind of mince around it, but no, well because that's the whole last part's kind of its own but yeah but it, I, I mean it, it didn't fit it, exactly. it was it's, very out of place no you're and i i think that you know i really wish that they maybe had just gone with some of the same eeriness of the book it, it's almost it, it it's like well for one thing i don't really love lyrics in my films that and in general like i would rather have a orchestral score or something like that um so in this case i just felt like it was really out of place uh, whenever Tom York was doing some singing and and yodeling, so, um, so I mean similarity to the original, for yeah. sure. Just um, again went the opposite. You know, you kind of had you know you had a new wave synth you know score. We're gonna have us some nineties English Brit pop. <laughs> yeah, like I said, they should have just said like, okay, let's just have all of uh, OK Computer as the soundtrack. You know, yeah. Just put Kid A out of the loop. <clears throat> um, how about the uh, how about the violence? Because the violence of Dario Argento's films they generally tend to stand out because they are like again art- artistically, even though they're gory, they're also beautiful in their own ways. If you think about like the stained glass moments of the original, this one has um, a different sort of beautiful art to it. Um, there's definitely, I guess, like. Uh, different types of violence that he uses that that Guadagnino uses that looks like Argento's, but at the same time, uh, he definitely does his own thing with the violence. Um, one of the, I mean, I think like the setups too are in, in much different. Um, there's more suspense in this one than what more, Ar- more elaborate too. Yeah, yeah. 
There's like, I mean, like, Argento did have elaborate sequences where there was like a woman walking through hallways to get to different areas of the school. But in this one, they are more elaborate and they're set up based on um, art and relating to the overall ballet, which really wasn't a big part of the original Suspiria. It was set at a dance school, but the ballet portion of it was not really something that Argento focused on. He didn't focus on art in the same way that Guadagnino focuses on art for Suspiria. And not only that too, the these moments are a lot sparser. Yeah. There's only like about three uh, instances throughout the film of having this kind of like body horror type of uh, situation happening where Argento Suspiria is more has maybe like six instances. It's not very overall has a lot of instances of like gore and horror, but the instances they do are quick, sharp, and vibrant. Like the you know the overall picture itself, like having a barbed wire that someone falls into or slitting someone's throat with a you know a straight razor. Here, it's a lot more methodical and thought out, drawn out to get to, and then when it happens, drawn out. Like, I think specifically of Olga and what happens to Olga with how... And they actually put witchcraft into these scenes, too, instead of, you know, being hint like, very vaguely hinted at in the original. Here, you see uh, Tilda Swinton kind of as Madame Blanc, like, do these, like, little hexes onto... Susie Bannon and when she's doing things and then it being impacted onto other characters Mm -hmm. and then what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the sequences here are um, elongated for one thing. The Olga's death is is, is a long sequence. It's it's, um, shot in sort of a juxtaposition to uh, the dance recital of the Volk that Susie is first learning. And you see Olga on the opposite spectrum doing her own sort of dance, but it's a it's a basically a death dance, a um, body contortion, yeah, a c- contortionist uh, element to it. And I will say that it, it is effective, um, but Guadagnino really runs it to like its extent. So it really is a very lengthy scene that just continues and continues. Um, almost her the- her being turned into a human pretzel is not enough. Watching her piss herself and, you know, shit shit herself in the process, too, and vomiting as her body's being contorted and crushed into this, you know. Yeah, the the whole brutal element of, you know, this is what your body does when you're you're crushed up. Um, Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it works here. Um, I know a lot of audiences, I think this was the scene where a lot of audiences were uh, sort of disgusted at Cannes. And... uh, Cause that's the worst thing that's ever been shown. At no, I know. A, I agree. A film I, festival. I agree. I don't. I think that again, Suspiria Two was one of those films that sort of had so much publicity right away, uh, and then kind of died out when it actually released. Um, it didn't do it much favor when people were saying like this. It was a disgusting moment. People had to look away. Um, those oh all, almost all those times when when that is being said, you're gonna be disappointed in the actual result because f- you know for me this I mean yes it certainly was brutal it was 
um, a very interesting moment, especially to see the actress who really was contorting in some of those ways um, to get that point across. But was was there a time where I was just like, ooh, it's too much? Uh, not really, you know, and and I think that that sometimes well, tw- again, it's twenty nineteen. Those, yeah, maybe if this is nineteen seventy seven, you're like, oh goddamn, sure. Now it's like, and and in in some ways too, the uh, the whole aspect of like vomiting and pissing, like those are taboos. You know, at a certain point in film, there was a, a saying that you were just like, you know, don't show someone pissing themselves. And now it's sort of become a taboo where it's like, if you get piss in there, like, that's an extremity to this film. And, you know, to me, it's like, okay, yeah, it's a bodily, you know, it's a bodily function. And it doesn't really impact me as much as maybe it does other people. But uh, in this case, I thought it was a well shot scene. It was um, perhaps maybe a little too long where it could have been edited just a little bit. Um, But an interesting element that does tend to focus on Guadagnino's one of his many themes throughout this film, which would be like the pain of art. Um, and, uh, so it, like, it's interesting and it was done in a different artistic way than Argento's artistic deaths, which were much more like elaborately based displays or like an actual art piece that you see. Uh, in this case, it was more like of any a, good cello film. Where yeah. The, the dead bodies to meet the be Exactly. Like in, in Argento's film, the dead body is the artistic m- palette the medium there and in this case it's more the medium is watching this death occur and that that sort of uh expands throughout suspiria especially in the concluding uh act which i mean we can talk about in i I don't want to bring it up in like full but we'll talk about it um which sort of is a very like extended sequence of events uh where witchcraft is really at the forefront and we just see multiple people sort of explode into a, um, a burst of blood. But to go back to like Olga's death, like it's not like it's literally the same thing as like the exorcist with like the contortions Mm. and the bodily functions. So what makes that disgusting where the same people would probably watch the exorcist and be like, Oh, that's so brilliant. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we're, for what to see, I think that's actually one of the, the that whole sequence is really good to see. You know when Tilda Swinton is, you know, like you don't understand what folk means, you know, because you get to hear Susie in her timid Amish way, but yet so confident. Like I, I feel like it's expressing how one would feel when they're fucking, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And she's like, but not like people fucking, but these animals, you know. Right, right. And when she's doing this dance. You get to see her, you know, what would probably, I'm no ballet or dance expert, but would probably be like, oh, so elegant, mm-hmm. fluid, and beautiful, and being totally contrasted in the, op- the total dichotomy of having someone getting whipped around in a mirrored room, smashed about, like I said, the bodies twisted, turned to a human pretzel, shitting them, pissing themselves because they're being crushed to death through the movement of Susie. Mm-hmm. It's not, like I said, I think it's really cool. It's really an interesting idea and a great way to actually take this idea of witchcraft and actually do something with it to, like, show the coven and how, you know... Because the whole reason that happens to Olga is because she spoke out against Madame Blanc. Mm. And the rest of... And even though Tilda Swinton didn't want to have that happen to her, the rest of the coven felt slighted for being, you know accused and looked down upon by her so they wanted to teach her a lesson because even 
Tilda Swinton and I think one other of the mothers in that covenant was like, uh, I think you acted rashly on that one. Right. You know. Yeah. I, Which again is weird. Again, weird. I don't know, like, cause did Mother Marcos say she, that had to happen to her? Cause it's Tilda Swinton who gives, you know, the power to Susie to do that. But she's the one afterwards, like, man, I think we should have done that. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's probably just like, again, that's the idea of like guilt. Like, maybe it wasn't necessary to to go all in like yeah. that but um what i think another thing that sort of is interesting about the contrast between that scene which is pretty practical um because i do think that there was contortionism involved in that scene of filming it uh is the really impractical effects of the conclusion the the final act of the film which is probably in this film guadagnino at his most um Decadent. Yeah, decadent and and just really going to the extremes of where he obviously was given free reign. Um, I feel like the the conclusion in here, that last act, is probably Suspiria's downfall. Uh, it's probably one of the, the um, less interesting moments of the film because of its decadence and how um bloated yeah it's, it, it is it's a very that's a good word for it bloated is a is a great word like mother marcos exactly <laughs> that is a that's that scene is um for one thing we talked about it a little bit but it's there's that whole tom york ballad that's playing over top of it which seems out of place but at the same time there's just so uh so much impracticality going on in that uh, the witchcraft is sort of at an all-time high there, and it doesn't really mesh with the rest of what we've seen, which is sort of, like, downplayed throughout the film. And uh, it, it's really, it's almost like a theater piece in that sense, Then, it, and it seems out of place in the rest of Suspiria. Um, and especially because the CGI effects are really not good in that I final sequence. I can't you just do practical. Exactly. That's like the CGI, because, all right, well... Spoiler, but obviously for all our reviews, spoiler. What do you think of the idea of at the end, Susie? Because this is one of the big differences from the original. Yeah, Susie is Mother Superiorum. I think it um it makes sense because there is the entire idea of her coming from a cult. They they don't come out right say it. They don't outright say it, but Amish lifestyle, Mennonite lifestyle, those are in themselves in any religion really. They are cults in themselves. And so you have that f- whole idea running through this film of various different types of cults and how they can come into play. Nazism is a cult. Uh, Amish people, Mennonites, they're all cults in some ways. And so she is a, you know, she would be the person who would be able to be sucked into a cult. So it makes sense as you're watching this film that, you know, this Amish person has been sort of indoctrinated already to be accepting of a cult like witchcraft. Uh, and then you find out, oh yeah, she is like the... And you, we get flashbacks, too, of her mother saying she's like evil and should never have been brought to the earth. Yeah. Um, we see her as they're like studying U.S. geography, and they're drawing U.S. maps and outlining the states. She's drawing Germany and yeah, arrows she, towards Berlin. She's constantly been like... Fixated. Yeah. So, I like the idea of her actually being Mother Suspiriorum. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, you know, I mean... From the way the film's set up, it's very telegraphed. But I think the idea is good because in the original, it's just oh, Susie finds Mother Marcos, and um, right, and she's yeah. the only one that's been able yeah. to stop it. And for, like you I know, said, hundreds of years. and this has been brought up only in the last ten minutes. Oh, I kill her in the house. 
academy burns down, the coven dies. The end! Right. You know. Yeah, it's very yeah. abrupt, and it's like, you know, if other people haven't been able to do that yeah. for, you know, hundreds of years, that it doesn't really make sense that one person randomly stumbles upon it and is able to. But here, the way they flesh out her background and how she kind of acts and um, the dreams that she gets from the coven, and at the same time... The dreams she has herself, it's you can tell that there's some kind of darker presence within her naturally. Mm-hmm. And then it being revealed that she is actually Mother Suspiriorum herself, which, because um, she's, like I said, they're like the, there's a destiny to it, to her getting to where she is. Now, whether she's cognizant or not of her being that until, like, I would say probably about a little over halfway through the film where she like wakes up after having her dreams and yells like, I know who I am. Like That could very well have been the turning point where she realizes right. that she's Mother Suspiriorum. Because I don't think it's at the whole cult part where she's like, you know, kind of. No, yeah, I think it's it happened. It's supposed to have happened as you're watching it, yeah. you know, prior to that. But I like the, the idea. I like that idea. It's really cool. And then, mm-hmm. you know, because again, it gets to elaborate on the whole Mother Superior idea, and we get to see kind of how she feels and acts, because even though this is the last act, we still have another 20 minutes, because this drags on, and the epilogue. Mm-hmm. So you get to actually have that expounded upon, which, you know, instead of being just like a tacked on idea, like, oh, there's other t- two mothers, so. I like that. I like that part of the whole ending, I really like that, and then her punishing all the other uh, mothers in the coven, who sided with Marcos because Marcos billed herself as being mother, like a mother superiorum, and she's a you know false prophet, and she's been leading them to do things that she doesn't want them to do, like you know killing these innocent people, and you know she brutally murders them by going Kenshiro from Fist of the North Star, making their yeah. heads explode with them, her like just bopping them on the head. But though Patricia, who's the girl that we get to see in the beginning, who's running away and timid and broken that goes to Yosef about like you know believing that there's this conspiracy of a witch coven in the beginning of the film that Yosef doesn't believe and she dies Olga and um who the fuck was the third one oh Sarah mm-hmm. um you know it's not this as we see Mother Suspiriorum isn't this overarching malevolent figure she grants them painless merciful deaths mm-hmm. because they were innocent and you know didn't need to suffer because they were already suffering greatly from their injuries and traumas and having their life taken away from them by this coven and she grants them painless deaths and you know is looking to give them that relief so yeah. it's not like this total malevolent thing it's this right yeah and the, the interesting part of this suspiria is that there's not really an in- inclination for the audience, like whether we should think that Mother Superiorum is is actually evil. She's a witch in a witch like way, but is she really like the epitome of what you would consider evil, or is does she? You know, are they a coven of witches that do random things? And in this case, the coven itself was sort of because it didn't have a leader, driven to do things that it shouldn't have. There's really no, you know, Guadagnino doesn't really give us a, a, an answer for that. It's it's and, and, and if you are looking at what Mother Suspiriorum does at the last act and then into the epilogue, it seems like she's really not that evil of a person. Like, there's not that intention to be evil there. So, she's more like the uh, the final 
enactor of humanity's evil. Um, so it's really interesting how because at the end when we get to see the epilogue when she visits Joseph because Joseph yeah. was there during the whole ceremony because he's the witness because yeah. he's somebody who has witnessed evil before and done nothing about it. That's how it all ties to the whole what happened to his wife. He's there and after all the horrible things that happened and his connection to his wife and him not doing anything that he could have done to stop it, which the film isn't really clear on. I could, like, was he also a Jew? Or was he, he or, was or, or, or was he not? Because it, or was he not? And that's why, like, he was able to, you know, not get caught and, and his wife did and he didn't do anything to stop it. Yeah, I felt like that was a, um, one of the, one, a big issue that I had with the film was that it wasn't really clear on Yosef and it's pretty important, his genealogy, because you're not sure, like, I wasn't sure, was he a Jew? Was maybe he, like, a Nazi at one point? And so there was that, like, tension mm. between him being a Nazi and his wife being a Jew and... So there's a whole because they did Im- I t- I t- implicate I, that he was a liar. I, I took I took it more as he was just he was a liar in the fact that he was just complicit because he didn't do anything. Yeah, to try I, to try to stop what was going on. But after um, studying a little bit more, I think that's what is the intended thing. I just think that they probably should have fleshed that out a little bit more because though Yosef does tend to become like a main figure point in this film, um, he they didn't really do a great job Explain of that. explaining his his yeah his past but because of what happened to him and mother you know susie grants him you know letting him know what actually cuz he's that's one of the things he he wanted to know what happened to his wife like what she picked up and put in the concert like he doesn't know mm. and he she tell at the end tells him what actually happened to her and you know he's already grief struck and violated mentally from what he saw during the, you know, witnessing the whole Coven's act. And after being told that, he's really broken down from it. And Mother Superiorum showing, you know, that she's has compassion, wipes his mind of mm-hmm. all of that so he doesn't have to remember it and live with it. She says, though you are guilty, you know, of not being a witness and not doing anything against it, you're not deserving of this kind of pain because you're overall innocent. Right. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people are talking about, we brought this up, what was the impact of having Tilda Swinton play both roles? Play the role of Madame Blanc. She does play the role of uh, Mother Marcos as well. But that's three minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's not very long. And then she also plays Yosef. What's what's the point of that? Is there is there really a point to it besides her wanting to like sort of um, like make it a little bit more difficult for herself throughout the film? Uh, I think that there is. The point is that she, again, we're, we talk about the like the reflection, the mirror image. Um, I believe that they meant for Yosef to be sort of a reflection of Madame Blanc in that he's also in this area of between two camps, one side of the camp, um, witnessing and feeling guilty about certain things as Madame Blanc does, and then be ultimately being you know part of that whole guilt-ridden consciousness uh, in this case, you know, Madame Blanc is the one who has been doing, perpetrating these things in favor of, you know, maybe perhaps becoming a mother, whereas Yosef has sort of lived his entire life not really knowing and, and being the one that got away, whereas his wife, he assumes, has not. So they're like sort of mirror opposites in that sense. No, they got the 
dichotomy between like you know magic and like you know science because yeah he's constantly sitting you know right. he's talking to people like oh like what you're describing about witches it's just an illusion delusions that you create yeah. you know and, and this, <laughs> yeah him being a psychologist yeah. is, is definitely part of that too so yeah very i i believe that's why you know is that is it like it's not very well um explained like it's not explained to the viewer but I believe that was probably the intention of why they had Tilda Swinton play both parts. And even Mother Marcos, because now at that point she's like all three of the triangle. <laughs> um, so, interesting. And, and probably also because it was just a, a challenge for Tilda Swinton. I don't think that they... I, the one area that this film doesn't excel with is uh, the makeup effects. I don't know that they're great. Really? I thought she looked... I mean, you can tell it's Tilda Swinton. I thought... I think Yosef looks good. I don't know about Mother Marcos. No, has well, too much of a plastic. I think by that point, as we could tell by that scene, the budget ran out. Yeah. And like pulled the old A van guy and we're, like, we're gonna do some bullshit, you know? Because yeah, yeah. you had these great practical effects before, and now it's like, ah, oh, now we have to have exploding heads and fucking death looking like. This yeah, yeah. I think that was probably pinata. Like, woo, yeah, you it, know? It, it, it's a misstep there for sure with the with the practical effects, especially uh, Madame Marcos. That's. But, I was seeing some people were comparing when when you see death and riding around blowing people. It was very Lovecraftian. Sure, like just like ooh horror monster boogie boo going. Yeah, I actually did not love death personified in that scene. Why not just have her do it? Exactly. I I did not love that she has like an entirely other, independent yeah, you know, like, other monster that comes around because it doesn't really seem to match with the rest. Of, there's never any other reference to like there being another beast that just is doing or that like mother superiorum could i mean granted if you think about it like oh yeah it'd be like probably in the wheelhouse of a godlike witch to come you know con- you know be able to command death itself but yeah even still it's like i, I didn't love that that's that's where it becomes it. like bloated and like all yeah. right that's I, that's why i think like you know and then con- in the that film that part of the film too with Guadagnino doing like all kinds of red effects, lighting effects, whole, the whole, the whole, yeah, it's like crazy. I was thinking like Carrie as she's standing yeah. there, it's all red, like, just like, and, it, and it also runs very long too because it's got to get all of Tom York's song in there, <laughs> so it runs too long for that as well. Because um, no one buys soundtracks anymore, so it's like I know I gotta have it. In it, it almost feels like like a very like amateur uh, stage performance. Of of Dakota Johnson just walking around like this, you know, holding out her hand and blowing people up. It's it 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 feels very amateur in that moment. Um, so I felt like that was just Guadagnino just being a little bit too um, off the cuff there and really not being reined in for that for that area of the. Though film. though I, I think it is nice that all the because er, way early in the film you get to hear the voting on who should be the leader of the coven Marcos or yeah. uh, Blanc and those all those who vote, voted voted uh, for uh, Marcos you got your dead yeah. vote Blanc you were spared but. so one thing that we didn't talk about or we, well what we did talk about was things that we fairly liked about this film we we covered on some things that we we uh, thought were like a, not not that great about it um but I also found that Suspiria was occasionally a frustrating experience to watch as well. Um, I think sometimes the slow burn is a little too slow. And as I mentioned, there are a few scenes where I felt like Guadagnino could have cut them down considerably to just sort of get rid of uh, some extra bloat on, on top of that. But the other frustrating element that I found was that 
Guadagnino has so many themes running throughout this film, especially in a historical context. In a historical context that for a lot of viewers is not very widely well known, especially the RAF portion of it. The World War II references obviously are a little bit more... Um, Beat the death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but I feel like some of those are very frustrating elements to watch and try to especially on a first watch like this, and at two and a half hours, let's face it, most people are only going to have one watch on this movie. And which, even though it's a film that warrants right, and multiple it, watches. It, it requires multiple watches, and there's a lot going on behind the scenes and, and in, in behind uh, characters and, and moments that is important. But I feel like those frustrating elements is that it just doesn't come together with those all of the themes as well as one would hope it would. There's just so much going on. And so many storylines that are kind of left threaded throughout that some of them just don't get to completion. Um, I would say like a lot of the characters that the, the secondary characters that it studies like Mia Goth's character um, and some of the others, Patricia, they really feel like like threads that never really were fully explored. They they. In some some ways, they do get to him and Mia Goth's character a little bit more than than others because she's sort of the audience stand-in. But at the same time, once we get to the end of the film and they sort of just wish for death and they're granted a painless death, their storylines feel a little bit incomplete. And that was probably my biggest frustration with this film is that sometimes Guadagnino was so expansive in what he was what he was uh, doing and and exploring and historical context of of the film that uh there was just not enough room even at two and a half hours to really capture it all in some ways and i don't like to i don't like to say this all the time but in some ways this probably could have been a a miniseries or you know a very limited tv run or something i was just i was was just thinking the same thing like just thinking like like, oh maybe it's like a four episode four hour miniseries yeah something like that or like a really netflix um limited series that you do uh where it has room to tell its story because you wouldn't want to put it on you know cbs abc anything like that where there he's going to be severely limited by what he can do um but given a run like that i think it could have explored more of its themes because there's a lot of there's a lot of you know the mothers that are part of the coven that we get to see, but we they don't, we don't get to really see them do anything outside yeah. of just be like, oh, I'm a witch in the background, you know. Um, and the viewer is also so meant, or not meant, but they're forced to really kind of um, anticipate what Luca Guadagnino meant. So there is that one witch who has the the glasses witch who seems to know that things are going on. She seems the Sally, to be a little the bit... Sa- the Sally Jesse Raphael. Yeah, that, exactly. She seems to be a little bit more empathetic to what's going on, and then she kills herself, and there's really not a lot of... You, you kind of have to just... Um, she did a vote. Yeah. So when they were doing... There's one person, when they're doing the vote on who should lead the coven, Bonker, uh, Marco, she abstains. So... You're supposed to, when they're talking like talking about witchy things at their dinner, and she just jumps up and stabs herself in the neck. Like she's like, shit's gonna go down. So like maybe she like sense like, oh mother, I think mother superior was here. Like yeah, fuck I right know. exactly. You're you're meant to sort of. I guess you you just have to put it together yourself. But I feel like there's a there's an aspect to it that Guadagnino leaves out that is sort of necessary for the audience you know there i do a a life that guadagnino doesn't really put things together for you 
you're really meant to just piece it together yourself by the end of the story. But at the same time, a little bit more of the uh, directorial input would have been nice for Suspiria. And, and especially like people who walked out of this film just being like, what the hell did I watch? What, what was that? Um, I don't, I don't think that a director needs to put everything together for you, but when there are some threads like that, where you really can't follow what they were, what they meant it to be, you gotta do a little bit more for the audience. I would say for me though, weakest point is pro outside of Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. Casting's not that great. Dakota, yeah. Dakota Johnson's really just, I know Susie's supposed to be this bland, She's like boring. a blank slate. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, she is so wooded in this. Yeah, I agree. Just, like, could have had a fucking board up throughout the entire film and then have it dance ballet and be <laughs> a thousand times more. She's just like, oh, you yeah. know, oh, I don't know. Like, that's why it's, like, and it comes off as weird and, like, not, like, like when she's talking about, like, like, like I said, like, the, the Volks scene, when she's talking about what she thinks Volks mean, like, oh, I imagine it'd be like how fucking with being and it's like oh that's believable you know yeah. Yeah, yeah oh i oh my, i buy that you have a sex drive you know mm, yeah uh. you know i mean i like because she's an amish girl and that's again a very taboo thing we get to see in like the flashbacks like one of the things she got her ass beat for is masturbating in the closet so yeah. what like, wouldn't it be like more sense like to have her play like be timid about it, but then like, when you're talking about it, you like speak about you speak about it with such like revel because like it's taboo, like you yeah. know I can't like you know I'm not supposed to, but it's like I it's part of nature, and you know it's something that we all you know crave and but no it's just just says it totally would and like oh so I imagine like fucking would be and it's like oh yeah good job good job I mean no one else is really el- is bad. But like no, like I said, outside of Tilda Swinton though, no one else is really outstanding. But then again, the cast is like Tilda Swinton in three roles, yeah, Dakota Johnson, and then yeah, and then a few other people like Mia Goth, who's who's actually pretty good in this role, and um, Chloe Grace Moritz, who is Patricia and really doesn't get a whole lot of. But she time. she is good. Yeah. Would you Would you think of the cameo? Um, I thought it was good. But I didn't know that until like I saw like oh that oh they had the original Spirit Girl playing yeah Yosef's wife. I mean you wouldn't know it unless you because her range is so much better than that three minutes in. Well, it's true, but also the problem with that is like she really just really does not look the same at all in this movie. At least I like not really recognizable. So you kind of just have to know that it's her. That's you know otherwise you know I don't know how you would know. But uh, it's like a Stan Lee cameo. That's right. And I'm forgetting her name, so um, good shame on me. Jennifer what? Jennifer Connelly. That it? Where am I? Here <laughs> I am. Here I go. Get on my phone. Looking it up. No, it's Jessica Harper. Why did I think Connelly? Oh, because oh, I was thinking Phenomena. Yeah. yeah. No, Jessica Harper. Yeah. <laughs> um, close enough set J's yeah. and they both have this kind of the same look except one's a little bit ace of fine they, they're both terribly wooden in their films so yeah um, alright should we should we give Suspiria a rating sure I'm pretty much I talked about uh, pretty much everything that I had to talk about so um, on a scale of 
uh, one to ten uh, hook teased penises. What would you give hook Suspiria twenty eighteen? Yeah, remember that scene with the detectives. Oh yeah, we didn't even yeah. We, oh, we didn't yeah, cover the, that. It's a very quick scene. Oh yeah, the the the, 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 so, so, the only like men in, uh, literal men in the film. Um, yeah, gets yeah. You get to see the you get to see it. Stand, stand, penis standing back there, hypnotizing her, laughing at his wiener. That's it, right? You get Look to see that. a penis. Look at that. That's, that's like every like man's worst nightmare. Like, <laughs> women just sitting there messing around with your flaccid penis and laughing at you. Like, ah, it's tiny. Yeah. That's right. That's why I said Sim- hooked teased penis. Sim- symbolism. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give it the same rating I gave the original. A 7 out of 10. I actually like this movie. I don't really understand how people did not like this film. I understand that it's long-winded, a slow burn, and bloated. But even the original film at 93 minutes feels bloated. Because there's not a goddamn plot to be found outside of the last 10-5 minutes of exposition. The rest of it's just like a 90-minute showcase in cinematography. Here, they at least have a plot that's interesting, engaging, well thought out, and drawn out. I think thematically, though, it gets run amok because there's just too many themes that there's been trying to be explored, and so the whole German history aspect of it becomes very muddied and, I think, unnecessary to the film. Uh, but overall, I like the fact that we're hearing the witches talk to each other and getting, you know, exposition between them about their history and what they're doing. You know, it's taking that original idea of there being three mothers and it being, it's this one's just focusing on Mother Superior and it's being a fleshed out idea. I love the fact that this film does subvert your expectations, goes totally in the opposite direction color and cinematography wise and it works brilliantly for this film because again as I said before if it tried to just recreate the original it would be totally you know unwanted because that's what people enjoy and love and remember about the original so the fact that it subverts your expectations with its um, color style and production style is really good and that's something I think that adds a lot of value to it I think Tilda Swin's very amazing in this i think her as madame blanc is great i think her as yosef is great she's shows why she's got such a great range and such a well-respected actress um other than that though even though i liked it again it's very bloated long-winded um tom york's score though i do like radiohead it is out of place and doesn't really fit i think the horror aspects are great Especially the whole Olga scene. The ending is also, as we talked about, too long, bloated, and bogs down the film. And that detracts it. Overall, this is like a... Um, I, to steal from someone else I saw online. It's like Cronenberg, uh, Plansky-esque. With like how it's kind of shot and style, stylization. And Wes Anderson. Like if Wes Anderson was to make like a horror film... It would be kind of like this, and then you just inject Cronenberg like cold style body horror, because I think Wes Anderson wouldn't probably be able to help himself from making it too like whimsical. There's no whimsy to be found here. Yeah. So I, I think the Plansky and like Cronenberg uh, comparison is good. Someone else said Kubrick too. I I didn't totally. I mean, kind of stylistically, yes, but um, 
Kubrick pays way too much att- attention to details to leave threads being kind of dangled about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I'd probably give it a 7 out of 10 as well. Um, I agree with most of your points. Um, I like the horror aspects. I wish there was a little bit more. I wish that Tom York's score was... Uh, they focused on the Volk theme a little bit more throughout instead of his uh, songs themselves um, so that it had more of a horror atmosphere. Um, I did like the historical context. Um, I do think that somewhat the German Nazism aspect is a little played out in here. Um, and, and I think that trying to incorporate all of those threads through history um, was a lofty goal that Guadagnino doesn't completely... Uh, succeed with uh with that said a lot of the other ideas are really interesting i like how he brings up you know uh art and the pain of art itself um reflectionism um self-reflection uh feelings of guilt um things like that are really interesting as they come up and because there are quite a few characters that are sort of featured throughout you do get uh a little bit of everybody's story in this one um and the story itself is pretty complex i do like how they included more information about witches and they went with the witch theme a little bit heavier um i like how madame blanc sort of has a a weird attraction to um susie banyan that that works in this one Uh, i also like how guadagnino makes the viewer feel uncomfortable with the constant switches and uh, points of view and then also the size and breathing throughout the breathing itself makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because it uh sort of messes with my own breathing and i think they they did that to good effect here with the mother of size um and i do like how they went with drab color schemes here instead uh, i like the, i think the th- this film has its own type of beauty uh more muted beauty than uh dario argento's classic film but uh i did like what they did with that as well and not try to mimic argento's style um you know we don't need another film that does lurid colors because <laughs> that's pretty much argento's thing so i'm hoping you know as guadagnino gets into the rest of his trilogy he's not going to copy inferno's lurid red colors either he's going to go with his own drab muted muted uh setup even though some people stated that they didn't really like it um other than that you know i had a lot i had fun with this film i do feel like it's a frustrating experience at times uh it's a little bit over long to be watching you know consistently you know a few times to really get um best use of all of the themes that guadagnino has going on in here um i can't see a lot of people like coming back to this film over and over again at two and a half hours long um but at the same time it does definitely have its perks here watching it um, and then especially in a rewatch, I think you're going to notice quite a few things that you missed the first time around, especially in the backdrops of scenes. Uh, so there is sort of that replay value in this movie, um, despite its length. Uh, so yeah, we had fun with Suspiria. Um, and, uh, the only way that you can, ha- you can have fun with a sort of art house film like this. Um, it's not something that you can watch and laugh about with your buddies, but uh, it's a little bit different than probably how you would watch the original Suspiria. So it's kind of interesting too, you know, the, the differences between the two. And can you imagine like doing like a back to back, uh, film festival of the original Suspiria and this one, you would see the similarities for sure. But I feel like the people who would, who would like both would be considerably different. No, I agree. 
So, but I am looking forward to see if uh, Guadagnino does follow through with doing the other two. You might as well. I would think so. Don't introduce the if you don't plan on doing it. They don't introduce their three mothers. Just say there's just Mother Superior, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. I hope that he does. I would be. I would definitely see Inferno and um, Mother of Tears. Um, so, Asia gonna be there? Yeah, I know. Yeah, Mother of Tears is not a very good film at all because it was at the you know it was a late film in Argento's body of work. And if you know anything about Argento as he went through his 80s period into the 90s and 2000s, his work really, really dropped in quality. Sort of like Romero. Um, I was thinking Carpenter. Or, or Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, both of them. As you got into like you know the, the 2000s and stuff like that, really Argento's work w- went through a spiral. And Mother of Tears is, uh, you know, because it did take him so long to do the last film in the trilogy, I think a lot of people were even more upset with Mother of Tears well, because said, of that. Well, like I said, I don't think he had any fucking plan on like. Well, the problem, too, is that I do believe that Dario Nicolodi had a lot to do with the uh, impact of Suspiria and Inferno, you know, with the storyline. And, and not being a part of Mother of Tears that much uh, probably didn't do that just Argento you, any favors. Does, don't you just think that just make, when he's got, like, the writing credit on Once Upon a Time in the West? Like, yeah, I know. Maybe right? he's there with, like, Sergio Leone. Right. He's like, and he's like... Put the there. Yeah. <laughs> what if you yeah, what and, kind of impact did he actually oh, have I, on the script? Yeah. Put, put and there. You know? Yeah, I know. I know. Because, <laughs> again, I'm not, you know, I'm not the Argento buff that you are, but we've done quite a, a number of his films. The only film that I've seen so far that was kind of well thought out, though oh, way too complicated for its own good, was Tenebrae. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is actually kind of a really engaging noir story. Mm-hmm. Everything else has been like, Things happen because I think it'd be look cool on a camera. It's true. That's, that's pretty much Argento's <laughs> body of work for sure. So, which is again like as Italian as you get. Why are you doing that? It look cool, you know. Yeah. You which don't want to see. Even... You don't want to see bees and crickets flying and monkeys and Donald Pleasance. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> what are we doing next week or next time? Next episode. Uh, Probably Captain Marvel. Is that going to be out by that time? No, that's coming out in April. Or is it in April? Or March. Well, like, I think it's I, March, yeah. Well, when is Infinity War out? Uh, April, I believe. Yeah, then it's in March, so we still got a little bit. So we got a little bit beforehand, yeah. so we're going to supplement with something else before we get to uh, Captain Marvel. Um, I don't know. Um, any uh, any uh, requests for type of type of film? Genre? Maybe we'll just think about it, and we won't announce anything right now. But we'll get back to to everybody. Oh, Happy Death Day! Happy Death Day, the original, the first one. Well, this month does have a Monday the eighteenth. Oh, okay. See, yeah, Happy Death Day. That's a fun movie. I watched it recently on my a plane ride, and I had a lot more fun than I thought I would with the film. So I didn't even know that was the thing. I've just been all of a sudden on Facebook getting trailers for Happy Death Day Two to you, yeah. And uh, I was like, why is it on a loop? Yep. And because <laughs> it's a thirty second trailer, but it's like ten seconds just looping over. Like it's the Death Day again. And I was like, this looks like it's like Friday the Thirteenth meets. 
Final Destination meets and like, oh, it looks like it could be kind of like a cool parody. Yeah, uh, Happy Death Day like is actually oh, like a, like a like a smart homage. It is actually. I I was uh, pleasantly surprised by it actually. So, uh, yeah, that sounds like fun. Happy Death Day. We'll do that one. Well, if the second one's coming out, like, well, did the first one come out in theaters? Because I don't yeah. remember ever hearing about yeah, it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, a few years ago. Yep, a couple so, years ago. So it was the second one? Yeah, this is Happy Death Day to you. I know that, but is that coming out to theaters? Or is that yes. getting, like, yep. Yep, uh, that's getting a theater release. Oh, so. Pump it out. That's right. Blumhouse. Good. They know how to make movies. Yeah, they do. Hmm? All right. Uh, so we'll be back in two weeks for a new episode. Thank you for listening to, as we finally get our Suspiria episode done. There's it's no been, more There's no more Valent, uh, Valentine's uh, movies. It, yeah, yeah, there is. Well, Valentine. I, well, I was, I, no, I'm drawing um, a blank, but... There's a couple of Oh, others. My Bloody... Yeah, there's no more My Bloody Valentine. No, no more My Bloody Valentine's can we, to cover. Can we just review My Bloody Valentine's discography? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. The band, you know, the nice pop emo band. Yeah. I do. I, do, I, I love them. <laughs> I know you do. Um, so we'll be back in two weeks. You can catch us on Facebook, facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast. We're on Twitter. Twitter is at blood and black rum. We are on, um, Podbean, Stitcher, Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, anything that you can listen to a podcast on. We're on it. So, uh, subscribe to us and leave us a nice review. And we also have an email at blood and black rum podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you want us to cover on the show. Uh, let us know what you like, what you don't like. Maybe we'll change it if you don't like it. Other than that, thanks for listening. We will be back in two weeks, uh, with happy death day. Take care. See you later.